Well, it is great to be back in the pulpit today to have the opportunity to open up God's Word as we continue on in a series that we have been in for a number of weeks now. We're calling it What's the Point? And uh, it's a study through the, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And I've been learning some things along the way that I didn't know before, and I hope that you have been also as we make our way through. So welcome to all of you. Welcome to those of you who are live and in person in the room. Welcome to those of you who are live and in person in other rooms, whether that would be our Moon Campus or our classic venue, or maybe you're live in your living room, and that's where you're watching this, and, and welcome to you as well. So looking forward to this time together. There was an interesting story that was in the news just two weeks ago that, that caught my attention. It was about this guy named Behan Mutlu, who was out on a job with some fellow construction workers, Workers, and it was at a remote site, and, and so they were actually spending the night there at this site for a couple of days, and they had a group of villas that they were, were staying at for this, and, and one night he went out with the guys, and they were having dinner and stuff, and he decided he was going to go back and just get some, some extra sleep, so he does. He goes back to the villa, and he falls asleep, but he startled awake very, very early that next morning with some commotion that was going on outside. And he was wondering what it was, so he got up and he went outside and he investigated and he found that it was a group of people who were walking around because they had become a, a search party looking for this missing guy. And he thought, well, I'm up now. I'm not going to go back to sleep. I may as well. That'd be kind of fun to join in on this search party. So he does. And so he's with them searching for a few hours and then they start calling the name of the guy that they're searching for. And it was his name. That was a, for hours he'd been out on a search party looking for himself. <laughs> apparently, it's in the news. You can go and look it up yourself. It, apparently, he had gone to the wrong villa and fallen asleep, and so his co-workers thought he was missing, and they reported him as a missing person. And so they were looking for him. Now, thankfully, that story, that search party, worked out pretty well, and they, they found their person, obviously, and they did it in a relatively short period of time. But it stuck with me because today we are going to be doing another search, only the search that we're going to be looking at doesn't end in a short period of time. In fact, it goes on and on and on for years and years and years. Now, the search we're looking at isn't about looking for a missing person. It's about looking for missing meaning and value and purpose in life. And the one who is doing the searching, at least at the start, is this guy named Solomon who we've been looking at over the course of these last weeks as we've been in this study through Ecclesiastes. Now, he's a guy who's wealthy, he's well-connected, he's very wise, and so you would think if anybody is going to find what they're looking for, this is going to be our guy. But he doesn't find it. And we find that the search just goes on and on and on, and that's what we're talking about today. The fact that the search is on. The search is on for this meaning and this purpose and Fulfillment. Now, Solomon's search for meaning is particularly interesting because it's a search that is still being conducted today. The search didn't end with Solomon. In fact, people have continued to be searching for these same things that Solomon is searching for all the way on down to today. We ourselves are a part of this search. We all engage in it. We all take part in it. Now, you would think if so many people are looking for this and have been looking for this for so very long that by now we would have figured it out, that now we would have finally found what it is that we have been after, but we haven't. 
And so the search continues to go on and on and on today. And I'm confident that, that you've got some questions in your own mind, that you've been searching for some of this idea of, uh, of meaning and purpose. We all, we all sort of go through that. And it's something that seems to renew itself over and over again as well as we walk through circumstances in life that are difficult to understand, that are difficult to process. And it seems like there are more and more of those that come up day by day by day, week by week, month by month in this world, in this culture that we live in today. And I'm guessing that you're experiencing it because there's been a seismic shift in values and in lifestyles and in belief systems that are reshaping world, our world and our cultures and our families and our workplaces and our churches as, as well, like never before. And we, it's easy to get caught up in this swirl and kind of throw up our hands and say, what is this all about? I mean, where is this going? Have you ever asked yourself that question as you look at the things that you see in the news and you think, see things that are shifting all around? Where is this going? Where is this going to end? How far is it going to go? When's it going to stop? Is it going to stop? Or do I just have to keep enduring these things, these, these attacks on my values, these attacks on, on life as I want to live it, as I want to experience it? Where's it all going? Where's the meaning in what's happening all around me? What's the point? Ever find yourself asking those questions? I'm guessing that you probably do. I ask those questions, and I understand those questions. A lot of people are asking them. We've seen Solomon here. He's this guy, if you've been with us these last weeks, he's this guy who's the wisest man in the world. He's asking the questions. He's having trouble figuring them out, and so he embarks on this fact-finding mission to sort out for himself, and by extension, it helps us if we're willing to be helped to figure out where does this meaning land? Where do we find it? What is the point? And the book of Ecclesiastes chronicles his effort to try to figure this out. And I invite you to go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 5 is where we're going to be kicking off here together today. And in recent weeks, we have seen him search for answers in all sorts of things, in pleasures. We've seen him look in philosophy. We've seen him look in work and career. I'm so thankful to Pastor Ben and Pastor Jason, who over the last couple of weeks have done such an excellent job of taking us through chapter 3 and chapter 4 and helping us to see more of the search that just continues to go on and on and on. But Solomon is finding that wherever he's searching, it just is landing empty over and over again. So the search goes on. And as it does, we're going to see him examine a couple of areas that maybe you would have said early on, why don't you look there? Because there are things that might resonate more with where we are. And the first of those is actually spiritual things. And you might be one who's like, well, why didn't you start there, Solomon? Because certainly, I know that that's the place where you're going to ultimately find this, so why didn't you just start there? But he comes to that place, but we might be a little bit surprised to find that he doesn't just come out and start celebrating. Yeah, let's look at spiritual things. Oh, there's so much to celebrate here. That's not what he does. He doesn't start with celebration. He actually starts with a warning. And right at the beginning of chapter 5 and in verse 1, look at what he, what, what he writes there. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, what's up with that? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. What's wrong with going to the house of God? What's wrong with church? What's wrong with worship, Solomon? Come on, you just have a bad attitude. That's all it's got to be. He says, no, there is a real, real problem here when it comes to this, why it warrants this warning that he gives to us 
here. And what he's trying to do is to, to make a point. And I just want to give it to you right away, and then we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll try to jump into it and see what brings him to that. When it comes to searching for that which is most genuine and meaningful, he says, first of all, this. You need to understand this, he says, that your spirituality is not about you. He says, that's where the problem lies. Your spirituality is not about you. This is a pretty keen insight on Solomon's part. See, there's this tendency for us to approach or to make our approach toward God more about us than it is about God. About coming into a place like this, really something more of, uh, of what's in this for me rather than what is in this for God that I can bring to him. We see this here as he gets started right away in verse 1. If you look back at there, that, he, he suggests some areas where you can see this. Let me point these out. Verse 1 says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. In Solomon's days, the, the, the worshipers were required to bring an animal to the temple that they would offer as a sacrifice for atonement for their sins. And so the ancient Israelites would bring their, their birds and their lambs and their rams, and they would have them offered as an altar on the sacrifice, thinking that as soon as that's done, I'm good now with God. Everything is straightened out because I've brought my sacrifice and I've accomplished what the law called me to do. But Solomon is pointing out here that that was a problem because they took the right steps, they walked through the right motions, but their hearts weren't in it. Their hearts weren't in it. That's the problem here. And so he calls it a sacrifice of fools. See, God wasn't just looking for an outward action on the part of his people. He was looking for an inward devotion. And all the outward action means nothing at all if it's not connected to some genuine move that's going on in the hearts of people. That was repeatedly the message of the prophets, including Samuel, who wrote in 1 Samuel chapter 15, these words, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? In other words, as much in this outward demonstration as in obeying the Lord as what's going on genuinely inside the heart. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's the context of that verse that maybe you've heard before. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. The fat of rams are what were being offered there on the altar. The sacrifices meant nothing if the heart wasn't in it. That's his point, and there was a problem. Well, today we don't bring animals to sacrifice here on some altar because that would make the place messy and it would be disruptive to children. No, that's not the reason we don't bring them. We don't bring them because we've got a better sacrifice. Who is who? Jesus is the better sacrifice. He came into our world to die for the sins of all of mankind. And because of that, we don't have to go through all of those motions. But it doesn't mean now, oh, well, that's great. We can wash our hands of all of this. We, do, we don't need to worry about anything. No, we do need to concern ourselves with continuing to bring the sacrifice of ourselves as we worship, of our offerings as we come and as we bring them for the purposes of God and to support the work of the ministry, as we work to serve other people and to serve God through volunteering and engaging and, and participating in, in the work of the ministry. 
We do all of those things. Paul, in fact, Paul is the guy who just lays it out. He says, here's what your attitude really ought to be. He says it in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, probably a familiar verse to most of you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. To offer your body as a sacrifice suggests... I'm all in. If I'm just going to throw myself on the altar, I'm saying, God, I'm all yours. Use me as you need me. I'm here for your sake, for your purpose, for your glory. This is not about giving lip service. This is not about going through the motions. This is not about some sort of selfish motive. Your spirituality isn't about you or the return that you might get. If I show up to church enough, God's going to be pleased with me. Or if I give a little something in the offering, God's going to then feel obligated probably to provide for me. And so we go through the motions. Why? So it might benefit us rather than the purity of the worship that says it's all about God. And whatever happens to trickle out beyond that in my direction because of the benefit I get because I have lauded Christ and feared God and appropriately given him honor and glory, then so be it. But how many of us come in, if we really do the evaluation of what's going on in our minds and our hearts and our lives, for something that is ultimately about me? We need to ask ourselves this question because we can all fall into this trap. I was doing serious evaluation in my own life, in my own heart, as I worked my way through this passage and considered what he is saying right here. So he goes on. He says, offering, there's one area. Be careful, he says, when it comes to what you're bringing as an offering. He goes on. He's got another area, similar vein. Verse 2, he says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and, <coughs> excuse me, God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. He's saying, he's God, you're just you. Let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. That sounds like he's saying, stop talking. And he kind of is. But talking to God is what? It's prayer. So it sounds like he's kind of saying, just stop praying so much. And it's not so much that he doesn't want us to pray, but rather what he does desire is that every word we say in prayer is honest, that it's genuine that we're not just simply building up words so that God might be pleased because we're praying so much. If there's nothing genuine in the spirit of our heart, he's saying, let me give you a warning. That's, that's not accomplishing a single thing other than demonstrating the fact that you're in this for you, that your spirituality is about you. He says, if you want to find meaning and purpose when it comes to approaching God, you have to get to the place where it's not about you. He goes on. There's another category he speaks of in verse 4. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at you at what you say and destroy the, word, the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. He says, when things are going poorly in our lives, we have this tendency, there's this, there's this sort of pull to say, well, well I, I, think I, can, I think I can figure this 
out. So I'll go to church more. I'll give more. I'll serve more, God. I'll do that for you. And then these problems I got going on in my life, then I'm kind of assuming you're going to, you know, I'll wash your back, you scratch mine, you know, that kind of thing. I'll get, I'll, I'll get things accomplished for myself. You'll, you'll take care of that, that need that I have. You'll help to fix my family. You will, because you, you, you kind of owe it to me. You probably won't say it that crassly, but we think in our minds, if I, if I do more here, then he's going to be obligated to do more back in my direction. See, it's easy to take Christianity, which is really supposed to be all about the glory of God, and turn it into consumeranity, if you will. That makes it all about us and my desires and intention on me. It's what I can get rather than what I can give. And Solomon is saying that waves and waves of people are going down that road, assuming that they're getting filled up because they're going through spiritual motions, only ending up sort of disillusioned and wondering, well, where is God when really we weren't going down the roads? It's a spiritual thing, so everything must be great. But our hearts weren't in it, at least not for the sake of worshiping the true God, we were going down that road for the sake of worshiping a different God. And we ended up empty and we're wondering, well, where's God in that? And you can feel that when it happens because your spiritual life just sort of falls into, into the blahs. You ever there? You just kind of feel like things are sort of, sort of blah. You don't feel any, any real joy in the Lord. You don't feel any sense of, of draw to engage and to serve God and to, to fully worship Him and to, and to experience His awe and, and, and fear the Lord and to acknowledge Him and to, and to be all in with God. And instead, we're just kind of going through the motions. And some of us have been going through the motions for many, many years and not even really realizing that that's what we're doing. It's just sort of, I, that's, I, I go in and I do this and I, I kind of feel this way, and I don't know why I don't get as fired up as some other people that I know in, in, in Christ, but that's kind of where I am, and, and we don't realize that perhaps it could be that for years and years and years, we've kind of been making it our spirituality about us, and we've never really learned to bow our knees at the altar of Christ, and to worship, and to celebrate, and rejoice in who He is, and to really learn what it means Give God the glory that He is due. All of those things are symptoms when it comes to making our spirituality about us. And there are a lot of people who are searching out spirituality today, but they're finding an emptiness because there can't be an answer found in devotion to spirituality. It's got to be devotion to Christ. And until we get there, we're just going through the motions. And we need to stop and ask ourselves what Solomon is telling us to ask ourselves, because there are a lot of people who are going through a lot of religious motions in the day, and God's like, I don't, I, I never knew you. Solomon points out that if we're going to find what matters, you need to come to recognize that your spirituality is not about you. That's where he starts, and he gives us that warning, and then he sort of makes this very abrupt turn, and he goes off in another direction. Now, he's still in this, in this theme of, I, I'm looking for that where I'm going to find the meaning, but he says, I didn't even find it in the house of God because my heart wasn't connected. So now he goes another direction, and another reality of his search is that your satisfaction is not found in consumption. That's where he turns. He starts with your spirituality is not about you. Now here we see your satisfaction is not found in 
consumption. So let's look at this. He goes on in verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all the king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? This is a very interesting twist that Solomon puts on this point about consumption because he's suggesting it's not just about what I consume for myself. It's about the fact that I'm really very happy to step on you to fulfill myself. That's what he's pointing out here. This isn't just about consumption. It's about consumption motivated by greed. That's what he's really talking about here. That that's the spirit, that that's the heart that so many of us come at this with, that there's this greed, there's this self-interest that keeps us moving forward. And he suggests that the pull is so strong that all of us succumb to it. It's that deeply embedded in our psyche, in who we are. And we're taught to move that direction by all of the things that are going on around us. It's a disease of self-interest, and we've all caught it. We've all caught it. I saw that a couple of days ago when I was getting ready to, to board a flight. We were coming back to Pittsburgh, and it was a small plane, and so the gate agent made an announcement early on that only a certain number of people were going to be able to take on their, their roller carry on, bag on, and, you know, put it up above. Only a certain number, and as soon as they got to that number, they were going to have to start checking them and putting them under the plane at the end of Jetway and, you know, get them back right at the end of the flight. You've gone through that before. And so as my turn to board came up, or as my group was called, I went kind of up there into the line, and I was doing the mental math to see, is mine going to get on, or isn't it going to get on? And and uh, I, I calculated that it was going to get on, but just barely. But my group is starting to move up toward the agent, toward the boarding door. And uh, I'm just maybe five, six people back. And three people, I'm not kidding you, three people came, two from one side, one from the other, and cut in line. All of them had roller bags. All of them did. Apparently, they were doing the mental math themselves as well. And so I found myself getting really irritated with these people who had just cut in line in front of me because I wasn't going to now get my bag inside the plane. And I thought, why? What is going on? And it's like, self-interest. It's just my own personal interest wanting to, to rule the day over those who otherwise might come in. Now, am I proud of the fact that that went on? No. Am I proud of the fact that I was happy when one of those ladies got up to the agent and she wouldn't let him board because it wasn't her turn yet? No, I wasn't proud of that. I was really satisfied, but I was not proud of what was going on there. Well, what was going on? Self-interest. 
That's what was going on there. It's a very powerful motivator. And Solomon knew that about self-interest. And he said that people are going to be more than happy to use power and position and privilege in order to exert themselves over other people. It happens in all sorts of realms. And yes, certainly that's going to happen in financial realms. He says, why? Because, he said, what we already saw, whoever loves money never has enough. And so people will oppress. People will use their power to, to move themselves forward. Occasionally you run into someone who has high enough motives and, and values that they're willing to even make a, make a sacrifice for the sake of somebody else. But Solomon says, for the most part, you can expect that that's going to happen. And that's why there is oppression. That's why there is injustice that happens all around us. Because it isn't only a financial thing, but it certainly rules the day there. And that's what he's saying. Our culture, in concert with our own self-interest, works to hardwire that attitude into us. So Solomon Solomon, who is richer than any of us are ever going to be, he bought into that worldview too. And he said, I went down that road. I pursued that. You know where it got me? Nowhere, he said. It's meaningless. Does that mean we're going to stop doing it? Probably not. Does it tell us that we're fools if we pursue that, knowing that it doesn't provide what we think it's going to provide? Yes, it does mean we're fools. God has given us this text, this book, to help us to know how to avoid the things that trip us up so much, and we discard it altogether so often. But, verse 12, he says, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. In other words, contentment and joy aren't a product of your net worth. But we don't believe it, do we? Sure, it says it. Sure, that's the principle. But oftentimes, we're just not willing to accept that. Or said another way, the level of your health isn't measured by your wealth. The level of your spiritual health isn't measured by the amount of wealth that you have. Contentment is within your reach regardless of what you make. So don't steal the joy. Don't steal the contentment and the satisfaction that can be yours while you're waiting for greener pastures. Look, I know it feels good to be able to blame the lack of the resource or the lack of joy and contentment that you feel, to blame it on the man, to blame it on, on someone who has control of the level of income that you are you're paid but if you're finding yourself in a position where you're looking to blame somebody else for the circumstance that you're in and you're looking to them and you're saying, they're my problem, the reason that you are able to do that is because you're giving them that sort of authority over you. They don't have that authority. You're giving them that power, perhaps because it allows you to push off the responsibility that is yours for connecting yourself appropriately with what you have and with God, which both can be done. And that's the point that he's trying to get around to here. Verse 13 goes on. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, as, and as everyone comes, so they depart. 
They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. Has everyone come, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. We tend to think that the greater the wealth is the answer to the things that we're missing in our lives. But Richard Solomon here says that it doesn't answer anything. He says there's no satisfaction in consumption. In fact, it only makes the problem worse, and here's why. Because one of the redeeming values, one of the redeeming purposes for which riches and wealth are actually afforded to people is so that they can be taken and used for eternal purposes. So that they can be used to enrich the lives of other people, to be used for, for things to accomplish the purposes of God, to keep ministry flowing, to keep things moving ahead, to accomplish the purposes of God. That's one of the redeeming values. But when we take those resources that we have and we dump them into consuming, whether it's consuming food, whether it's consuming whatever it is, we turn that into something that we have consumed, something that is in front of us, which back in verse 11, it just all we can do with that is look at it. And now we have taken away from ourselves the opportunity to use the resources that we've gained for something that is eternal. It's just sitting there rusting. And so we have put ourselves in a bad position by tying it all up. It's best to put to use the things that we have for the purposes as we have opportunity to do so because you can't take it with you. You know that, right? And if you need an opinion beyond mine, beyond mine on that, then look to the Bible because it gives us the same thing. And if you need an opinion beyond the Bible, look to country music. <laughs> it, it, it says the same thing. Christian Bush says, sings, you never see a hearse with a trailer hitch, right? That's what, he, that's what he's saying. We've all heard that. I hope you haven't all heard the song, but uh, we've all heard that sentiment, right? We've all heard it. And then I go and see this. <laughs> Apparently, there is such a thing. And if I owned a hearse, I would always drive it around with a trailer hooked up to it because people would laugh, they'd take pictures, they'd love it. But uh, anyway, you get the point. So we ask ourselves, well, what is the purpose? If we can't take it with us, at least I can find some, some value in leaving it to those who come behind me. Leaving it as an inheritance to our kids to provide for them, even though studies show that the majority of kids, I just saw this study, the majority of kids go through the money they've been given by their parents so quickly that it never has the opportunity to benefit the grandkids and that more often than not, it's used in a way and toward a purpose that the donor wouldn't have approved of. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting, well, so don't give anything to your kids. That's not what I'm saying. Not by a long stretch. But maybe there would be reason to have conversation with those that you are putting it in their hands and saying, you know what, these are the values by which I've lived my life. I, as I've worked my way all the way along, I have tried to live with these principles in mind, and I would love for you to advance those same things as you use these things that I'm leaving to you. Or maybe even be more directive than that with it. Not saying cut them out by any stretch. But maybe it would even be a way to engage them into something that promotes a value that is beyond my own enjoyment, just my own selfish purposes. 
All right. Solomon says that satisfaction is not found in consumption, and then he offers one more directly related truth, and it's this, that your success is not found in wealth. There are probably some different reactions that you have to that statement. Your, your success is not found in wealth. Some of you would be like, of course not. I knew that. There, there's no way you can find your success there. Others of you are probably thinking, well, okay, I know that sounds right because we're in church, but I mean, when it comes right down to it, what bigger measure is there really of how successful I've been than how much I've earned? And others of us would, would say, well, I, I, I can't go so far as, as to say that my success is found in wealth. So no, it's not. But as we really look at the way that we orient our lives and the things that we're prioritizing, it makes it pretty clear that we've, we've actually placed that pretty high when it comes to the decisions we've made about career and how much we're going to invest in extra hours and in building that career, when it comes to where do we find our satisfaction, where do we find the, the happiness that we experience, how do we use the things that we have, how generous a person am I really? Because I can't be too generous because then I might end up with, with less. And so we're, we're making value statements all the time, not just by what we say, but by the the choices that we make and the way that we live. So here's, here's what Solomon says in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their heart desires, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Now, we've got to wonder, why would God allow somebody to have wealth, to accumulate wealth, so that they could have anything that they want, but doesn't give them the ability to enjoy it? Why would he do that? Well, it seems to me that one clear reason would be so that that person might experience the ultimate in success, the ultimate in value, in meaning, and purpose to experience that sort of success in life. Genuine success is found through relationship with God, and for many, the presence of wealth together with this internal self-interest that we have is only going to serve to pull us away from God. It's going to draw us in the direction of of living through that wealth, of living through that self-interest, of finding value and meaning and purpose in there. But if God doesn't allow us to enjoy that, it forces us to come face-to-face with, well, where, where can I find purpose? Where can I find my Meaning, Jesus taught that it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the rich man makes the richness his savior. And so if God allows us something that ultimately we don't have the ability to enjoy, in order that that might take our focus and place it on God where it needs to be in the first place, then glory be to God for his love and his care that desires to lead us to the place where we experience the ultimate in meaning and purpose and value and fulfillment and for eternity, rather than simply living it up for the few days that we have on this earth and being bankrupt when it comes to eternity. Solomon then keeps driving this point home in different ways. Verse 3, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. 
It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. He's saying this guy's got money, he's got kids, he's got a long life, but he's lacking in relationships because he doesn't even have somebody who can give him a proper burial. It's like, so what did all that wealth accomplish for you? You've got no legacy that you're leaving and you didn't use it in such a way that it allowed you to move forward in the things that really mattered. You've allowed yourself to be sidetracked. And again, the wealth is leaving you bankrupt. Verse 7, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. He's describing the mundane treadmill of life. We work so that we'll be able to eat, and we eat so that we'll have the strength to work, so that we'll be able to eat, so that we'll be able to work, so that we'll be able to eat, and on and on it goes. And it's like, where is the meaning in that? What's the point? if that's what it's accomplishing for us. He says, open your eyes. There's something deeper and bigger and more significant. Verse 8, what advantage will have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He says we need to be intentional. We can just make life about feeding our appetites. Food, clothes, Wealth, more wealth, technology, pleasures. He says there's nothing lasting in that. Can't satisfy the deepest longings that are placed in us by God. Verse 10, whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during a few, the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? See, these are good and penetrating questions that Solomon poses, and he seems to be suggesting that the answer is elusive, that it's unknown. It's like, well, let's just throw up our hands because nobody can know. But that's interesting because he's already opened up this little window to understanding. I don't know if you noticed that we skipped a couple of verses here, but it's tucked right at the end of chapter 5. And in verse 18, and with this we're going to wrap this up, says, This is what I have observed to be good, that it's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. As where most of this book is all about the places we search for meaning and are left empty, Solomon unlocks this door and he just creaks it open for us to get a glimpse inside. Earlier, we saw him describe this person who has wealth, but God hasn't given him the ability to enjoy it. Why? Because it would have kept him from leaning into God. Here he describes the person who he's given wealth and does have the ability to enjoy it. 
Why? What's different? Because he's already leaning into God and finding his purpose in him. And for this guy, his wealth is not a distraction from living in God. Instead, is a resource to live out his commitment to God. Completely different perspective. Completely different sides or ends of this pole. He's content in what he has, and he's using it to advance the purposes of, of God in his life and beyond. That's what makes all the difference. This is a big deal to get the peek inside this door. For six chapters so far, Solomon has been telling us of all the things that are empty pursuits, all of the things that are meaningless. And in this arena, he's asking, what's the point? What's the point? Where's the meaning? But finally, we get this glimpse, and it makes perfect sense. Your success doesn't come through your wealth. It just doesn't. It's what he's saying. In fact, contrary to the message we hear every day, wealth is inconsequential when it comes to finding meaning and satisfaction. That's not an overstatement. Wealth is inconsequential when it comes to finding meaning and satisfaction. For many of us, it's, I know I can find it. I just need a little bit more. I'll be a little bit more content. I'll be a little more satisfied. What he says, the one who has never has enough. Nobody's ever satisfied with their income. Solomon, who had everything, more than we'll ever have, says, I couldn't get to the place where it was enough. But I didn't have to, because when our satisfaction is found in God, we have already found success, regardless of whether we have little or much. So, when it comes to finding joy and satisfaction, in this life. The salient question is not what's in your wallet, but who's in your heart. That's the salient question. And it's the question that we need to all be asking ourselves. Solomon is saying, I want us to pull back the curtain for a moment. I want us to examine where we are. I want us, us to examine the assumptions that are made by people all around us in culture. I want us to examine the nature of our heart, not just when we approach wealth, but when we approach church, when we approach spirituality. Because so much, we have fallen into these traps and we've allowed other principles and other ideals that are lived by other people in other places to come and crash in on us and to shape our own perspective. And he says, time out. We need to upset this whole cart, and we need to start over. He says, let me give you this warning about how we approach these things so that we would not get sidetracked and pulled off and have to go through this search all by ourselves, the same thing that Solomon does. He's found himself there, and he opens up this little window, this door, and he lets us get this glimpse inside. And he says, learn this principle. So I just want to leave you with that challenge. I want to invite you to ask yourself, when it comes to entering into God's presence, is it about seeing the people, hearing some good music, about maybe God feeling better about me because I feel about better about myself now because I came on in, or how much of it is exalting God, of acknowledging His, His glory, of fearing who he is, 
I want to challenge you to move yourself forward in that regard. Because the interesting thing is, as soon as you find that, all of these other things that you, you, you're trying to manipulate God to provide, somehow they just sort of fall out along with it. And you get God in the process. Instead of trying to manufacture spiritual meaning all the way along. Same thing, same principle operates in the realms of faith. And we can trust that. We can believe that and start to enter into that satisfaction and we can watch our attitudes and our minds change. We can watch our relationship with our spouse change if you're married. Because it's not about that sort of tension of, of we didn't save enough or we shouldn't have spent that or we, we can simply fall into enjoying the things that God has given to us and finding satisfaction in where he's placed us because this, these chapters are all about putting us there. Your success is not found in your wealth. Your success is found in who you've given your life to and how you're leaning into that. And the rest falls into place. I want to challenge you to try that if you never have before and just see if God doesn't come through on his promise to see if you don't learn what Solomon learned and find yourself at a place where you're finding a joy and a happiness and a fulfillment that you've never experienced before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come first to confess, to confess the, the times that we've entered in to a place like this with hearts that weren't set on you, that hearts that were going through the motions, with hearts that were really more in it for us. Who's going to see us? What are they going to think of us? How maybe you'll be more inclined to provide for us because we're, we're doing the things you told us to do even though we're not doing it with the genuineness of heart. Lord, when it comes to the things that we consume, that we might recognize that, that you, haven't, you haven't called us to just be paupers and to, to walk away from enjoying the goodness that you've provided, but at the same time that we would not dump so much into filling ourselves up that we don't have opportunity to really fill ourselves up with you because it's only as we choose to to give to purposes and to support the work that you are about and to advance the work of the kingdom that we're really going to find that satisfaction that you have offered, where we are able to find what success is really like for the follower of Christ. So I just pray that you would give us clear minds as we process these things that we have looked at in your word, that we would be willing to do the examination and to make the changes that are necessary to walk more in step with what your call is on us. Lord, this is, this is very penetrating. This is very hard to, to process. It's very hard to, to do this examination, in part because we have influences that have been telling us for so long that something else that has looked right is right when it's not right. So I just pray that you would give us clarity of mind, clarity of perspective, and the courage and the boldness to follow after where you're calling us to go, that we'd have a heart filled with you, for that is where we can find our joy. 
And that's when the search is complete once we've found you. Lord, let us walk in that, we pray, to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.